Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to follow the link in the description after today's episode for more information about today's article and to claim CME credit. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Hi, everyone. This is Frank Domino, your host of Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine. On our podcast covering the new AACE guidelines for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, released on November 14, 2022, I misspoke on the practice pointer. Here's the correct one. If the ALT-AST ratio is greater than 1, Evaluate your patient for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease by obtaining an ultrasound and consider aggressive treatment. A shout out to the amazing Jay Winner for catching this error and writing in. Thanks, Jay. And thank you all for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine. Welcome to this week's podcast. Janet is a 32-year-old assistant manager at a clothing store who has been having trouble with feeling stressed and having difficulty functioning at work. She's not feeling appreciated and has stressful interactions with her boss. The anxiety has led to trouble getting out of bed in the morning. She's called in sick a few times because she needs a mental health break. While you're at your visit, you ask her to complete a PHQ-9 survey, and her score is 14, consistent with moderate depression. After discussing options, she indicates she would like to both get some counseling and try a medication. She tells you that her sister was recently treated for depression and the doctor did some kind of blood test to see what the right medication she should go on and the right dose would be for her weight and height. She got better on the medication and Janet wants to know if you are going to do the same blood tests. Hi, this is Frank Domino and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor at Dynamed. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me on this morning. Sure thing. Um, so I'm unfamiliar. What blood tests could Janet's sister have received that helped choose a medication for depression? So there's been talk in the uh, or research in the uh, psych world for some time about uh, looking at the cytochrome P450 system and how it metabolizes antidepressants. The two most important uh, uh, alleles in, the, in that system are CYP2D6 and CYP2C19. And these, uh, but they're not the only ones, but these are ones that affect how quickly the liver will break down antidepressants, sometimes to metabolites that either are, are active metabolites or they may have side effects or things like this. And based on people's genetic makeup, they either have decreased function, normal function, or enhanced function and they'll metabolize the medications accordingly. Those with decreased function, we call poor metabolizers, and they tend to have higher blood levels for the same dose. In a similar vein, people with enhanced function metabolize medications more quickly and require a higher dosage to get a therapeutic effect. These people are sometimes called ultra-metabolizers, depending upon just how quickly they're uh, breaking down the medications. So these genetic tests, they're typically ordered as a panel. And they're uh, proprietary tests, and they can, uh, at least the idea is that they can identify individual 
TYP patterns, and then using those results, they and knowing how certain medications are broken down in the body, they will then be able to guide medication selection and potentially monitoring as well. Ah, the world of personalized medicine. We've been down this path, I believe, with warfarin. Um, okay, so there's a blood test to help determine how effectively uh, you might metabolize an antidepressant. What's the evidence to support us ordering these tests? Well, it's funny you had mentioned that you're not all that familiar with it because these tests have been around for about two decades. And that already tells you that, you know, they're not all that um, definitive. There have been a number of studies, and some show benefit for moderate to severe depression. Uh, typically, these studies have had response rates at 8 to 12 weeks, and then they stop looking. Uh, one of the largest was the Genomics Used to Improve Depression Decisions, or GUIDED trial. This uh, was had results published back in 2019, and they had about 1,500 patients. And they did not find a difference in the percent improvement of depression using pharmacogenetic guided testing. Um, That trial was only eight weeks long. So recently, uh, there was a new trial. It was just published. It was the Precision Medicine in Mental Health Care, or Prime uh, Care trial. And this one, the researchers looked at pharmacogenetic guided care compared to usual care in just about 2,000 patients. And they looked at outcomes at 4, 8, 12, 18, and 24 weeks. And what they found was that the pharmacogenetic testing increased the likelihood of using a drug that did not have a potential drug-gene interaction, which is, you know, what they were trying to do, compared to just uh, clinicians uh, prescribing whatever they wanted. There were differences seen at 8 and 12 weeks, but there were no significant differences at 18 or 24 weeks. So what this means is maybe you get a a little bit quicker response with pharmacogenetic testing, but by four to six months, the usual care group has caught up. Uh, the medic- just by way of noting, the medications where this has been looked at the most are the tricyclics, which we don't use so much, uh, but this idea of uh, looking at the metabolism applies to pretty much all of the antidepressants. All right. Well, we're busy clinicians, so ordering a blood test, especially a genetic test that may or may not get covered and may or may not come back in the next few weeks, um, is, to me at least, clinically uh, of low, low value. How should we go about selecting medication for patients? What can we glean from this data that helps us in our day-to-day practice? Well, the first thing when you're treating depression is to find out if the patient's been treated before and if they've been successfully treated for depression in the past, then typically putting them back on whatever worked before is going to be um, a good start. The second thing is all medications for depression have the potential for side effects. And so taking into account what, are the, what is the likely adverse effects and how that would affect your particular patient can help guide the medication selection. Another factor is whether family members have had success or problems with particular medications. This has two advantages. First of all, if a family member has had success, the patient is likely to believe it will help them also, and that belief may have a, a therapeutic effect. Or conversely, you know, if, they, uh, if they're worried because somebody else had a bad reaction and you give them the same medication, they may be more likely to uh, report adverse effects. The other thing is that in an indirect way, knowing what a family member has had success with may be taking the genetics into account. So 
there's probably some benefit to that. Other factors to take into account are whether there are uh, comorbidities. For instance, if someone has anxiety also, we know SSRIs are the preferred drug for anxiety. So if someone has both anxiety and depression, which is extremely common, then starting something like an SSRI would be uh, a reasonable option. Okay. So Janet's here today. Um, She's asking for this blood test. What should we do? So first, we should explain to her what the testing is, what what it's trying to accomplish. You know, some people may think, oh, there's some tests out there, and they have sort of no idea what, what the test actually is and what it's doing. Then we should explain that the data has been inconsistent for this testing making a difference in clinical outcomes. And any benefit is likely to be just getting better a little faster. Now, that, of course, might be important to her. But on the other hand, I have to tell you, Frank, these tests are not always covered by insurance. And when they are, there can be large out-of-pocket costs to the tune of several hundred dollars. The list price for one of these tests is is around $600. So if that's not covered by insurance, that can really be a a burden for uh, many patients. Talk about inducing depression. Alan, this is very helpful. Um, I have heard of these tests. I've never ordered one. And I think it makes great sense to take a very good family history and base treatment on the patient's clinical symptoms and their diagnoses. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. Testing for drug gene interactions may not improve clinical outcomes and is an expensive test. Join us next time when we talk about the use of proton pump inhibitors and their relationship to increasing the risk of gastric cancer. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.